0: over 7 billion people in the world we all have one thing in common every day we all get dressed
1: welcome to dressed the history of fashion a podcast where we explore the who what when of why we wear we are fashion historians and your hosts april callahan and cassidy zachary welcome to the show a few weeks ago april and i had the pleasure
0: of being guests on the amazing podcast stuff mom never told you Co-hosted by Bridget Todd and Annie Reese, each episode addresses the challenges facing women today and throughout history.
1: And one of those biggest challenges we women have faced throughout history, well, That might be gaining the right to choose what clothing we put on our own bodies. Um, You know, and this is an issue that's been at the center of many of an episode of Dressed, and we are excited to share with you today our recent conversation with Annie. We all sat down to discuss what happened when a select group of women, including one Amelia Bloomer, decided to put on pants in the mid-19th century.
2: Hey, this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And today, I am joined by not one, but two guest co-hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. We're happy to be here.
2: You uh, host the podcast Dressed, the history of fashion, which is all about the history and stories behind the clothes that we wear. And listeners, if you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend it. But this makes them the perfect folks to talk about our topic today, Bloomerism. And uh, of note, it's Halloween the day we record this, so it's appropriate for me because one of the first costumes I ever wore involved bloomers. And Yay. I, I would like to say it had to do with bloomerism and that I was a feminist from a very young age, but that would be a lie. I think it was Minnie Mouse-related costume.
1: Well, we've come full circle. <laughs>
2: Yes, so let's let's dive right in. Uh, what is bloomerism?
1: Bloomerism—it um, was a dress reform movement that began in the middle of the 19th century, which really centered around rethinking women's dress um, for both reasons of health and also comfort. And specifically, it focused on the adoption of pantaloons. Um, And these pantaloons were given the moniker of bloomers um, because they were named after one of their main proponents, who was Amelia Jenks Bloomer. And she was the editor and publisher of a really, really early feminist newspaper called The Lily. Um, And what I think is so fascinating about bloomerism is that it's this intersection of how the first wave of American feminists Dealt with the topic of fashion dress starting around 1850, 1851. Yeah, when I was
2: uh, researching into this, and I typed in bloomerism in Google, um, it, it some places I saw defined it as feminism as a type of feminism, which was pretty cool. And if we if we look at the the players here, some of the key people involved in this story, they are big ones in the history of feminism, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, and so you have Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and of course, Amelia Bloomer, who all adopted this style. Um, But before we really talk about Bloomer's and its significance within the women's right movement, I really think we probably should talk about the movement itself. So in 1848, a woman by the name of Lucretia Mott, her sister Martha Coffin Wright, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton all organized what was the first women's right convention in Seneca Falls, New York. Um, But actually, the seeds for their feminism were laid years earlier in their personal experiences. So just to give our listeners an idea of what life was like for women at this time, uh, for Lucretia Mott, for instance, as a young woman prior to her marriage, she was a teacher. And this was a position she was quite proud of until she found out that her male counterparts were making exponentially more money than her. This kind of still Mm -hmm. sounds familiar. It does. (laughs) Um, And so that kind of sparked her interest in women's equality and women's rights. And I think, April, you can speak to Elizabeth's experience as a young woman as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I feel like all of these women have very distinct and separate origin stories, you know, like how they came to the cause of women's rights. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton's story was particularly interesting to me um, because it all started when she was a teenager and she was president of a local girls' club or young women's club. And this group of young women or girls, they decided that they wanted to raise funds to help pay for the tuition of a promising young man who wanted to attend seminary school that lived in their town. So they did all sorts of things. They held bake sales. They made and sold jam. They organized concerts, um, you know, and they basically, you know, Contributed significantly to paying for his tuition. And then when he finally graduated, they made him a brand new suit and they invited him to come to their congregation and address the church. Um, But, you know, instead of acknowledging their efforts in any way, shape, or form or thanking them, basically he opened up with this verse from the Bible chapter of Timothy that essentially says, But I suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp the authority over the man, but to be in silence. So, <laughs> I mean, this was a huge slap in the face to these young women. Um, and understandably, Elizabeth was furious. She got up, stormed out of the church, and the rest of her friend followed. And she, she really cites this incident as, as the moment that she became motivated to really look into the, the lack of parity between men and women. And, and she goes on to become one of the key figures in igniting the women's rights movement.
0: Yeah, and for Amelia Bloomer, who we'll learn more about in a minute, too, she remembers being a 16-year-old girl and witnessing her elderly neighbor being evicted from her home after her husband died because her entire estate, or his entire estate, was left to his only living heir, who was a long-distance male cousin who this woman had never met. Um, And because at this time, women could not hold property. They could not vote. They were basically second-class citizens confined to these very defined roles of wife and mother. And so, Lucretia and Elizabeth, for instance, they meet for the first time in 1840 at the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London. And just a little about Lucretia Motts because she's this incredible woman. She's a gifted and respected American Quaker preacher. And it should be noted that in the Quaker religion, men and women are regarded as equals. So they're really ahead of their time at this point. and Lucretia and her husband were vocal and active abolitionists in America. And she was so well-respected in this community, in fact, that she was sent to this uh, national conference in London as one of only six women. And it's here that she meets Elizabeth Stanton because she and her husband were also abolitionists.
1: There's a lot of crossover between mm-hmm. the early feminist movements and the abolitionist movements and the temperance movements, too. Yeah, people who are really enlightened at this point. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> These women
0: are in London for this very important cause in which they had worked and advocated for tirelessly. And what happens? Well, the male delegates spend the entire day, the first day debating about whether or not women should even be allowed to attend the conference, much less speak or vote in the proceedings. And the conclusion is to keep these women, they can be there, but they have to sit in silence behind a curtain. Oh. So... I mean, this is women's place, right? In the shadows right. of their husbands, to live in silence and servitude to the role that they're born in. So, um yeah. to say, this experience really endeared Lucretia and Elizabeth to one another, and it's further cemented their beliefs that women were being denied their God-given rights. And in 1848, the quote most shocking and unnatural event ever recorded in the history of humanity," end quote. This is a contemporary quote, by the way. Happened, and of course, this is the first women's right convention held in Seneca Falls, New York. And uh, it's at this two-day conference that the famous Declaration of Sentiments document was signed by 68 women and 32 men. And this is a document that was authored by Elizabeth Stanton. And it was essentially a redrafting of the Declaration of Independence, um, which, you know, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. And it basically advocated for women's equality and more specifically to their right to own property, and most controversially, to their right to vote. And of the 300 people in attendance was Amelia Bloomer.
1: Ah. (laughs) And out of all of this kind of comes a lot of different things. Um, Amelia had already been involved in the women's temperance movement or the temperance movement in New York. Um, For anybody who doesn't know what temperance was, it's basically it was a movement um, advocating for the abstinence from alcohol because um, drunkenness was considered problem in the domestic home. And this was a pretty big movement at the time. Um, and so when Amelia decides to form a New York State Women's Temperance Society, that goes hand in hand. They felt like they needed a platform for their voice. So they found this publication called The Lily, which was a really, really early feminist newspaper. And uh, Cass, do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Because I think I think you have some research on that.
0: Yeah. So on January 1st, 1849, the Lily was published for the first time. And this is one of the first, if not the first, newspapers in America for women and made by women. And Amelia was its editor um, from the beginning. Uh, But according to her, even before this first issue came out, the society had gave up the enterprise altogether because they weren't really prepared for what it entailed. They're kind of disillusioned by the time its first printing happened. So, Amelia was unabated and she writes, as the editor of the paper, I threw myself into the work. I assumed the entire responsibility, took the entire charge editorially and financially and carried it successfully through. So, um... In the first issue, she writes, it is women that speaks through the lily. Intemperance is the great foe to her peace and happiness. It is that above all that has made her home desolate and beggared her offspring. Surely she has the right to wield her pen for its suppression. Surely she may, without throwing aside the modest refinements, which so much become her sex, use her influence to lead her fellow mortals from the destroyer's path. And it's really here where Amelia um, begins publishing a few years later her support for dress reform in the form of this practical two-piece garment. Right. And
2: this is a lot of um, the women we've been talking about, they were involved in writing for the Lily, right?
1: Yeah. um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton um, was kind of one of the first people to broach the subject of dress mm-hmm. reform in the pages of the lily um she did write under a pseudonym um sunflower her father was a congressman and wasn't necessarily particularly happy about his daughter's <laughs> work in 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 the women's rights movement but um so she was writing for the paper she's kind of the first one that starts addressing questions like Why are our clothes so hard to fasten? Like, why do we have to have someone help us dress, whereas men don't? Um, So these ideas were already kind of like burgeoning and on the surface within the pages of the lily, even before Elizabeth's cousin, whose name was Libby Miller, came to visit in 1850. And this is a really critical moment because when her cousin, Libby, shows up, she's wearing bloomer costume, or what we now call bloomer costume. So she's wearing a traveling outfit that was said to be of black satin. um, And the skirt, which the typical skirts at the time, of course, swept the ground, the hem of the skirt had been um, shortened about one foot to about five inches below the knee. And beneath that, she had on what were kind of called Turkish trousers. So they were kind of wide-legged pantaloons that matched her dress. Um, But it's this appearance of Libby that really kind of changes things. Um, Elizabeth and Amelia are both thrilled. They think this is brilliant. Um, And they both adopt the costume. And in 1851, Amelia actually publishes a woodcut of herself wearing this style and advocates for it in the pages of the Lily. And this is the moment where things blow up.
2: Yeah, bloomers caused quite the stir when they when they started to take off. And we're gonna talk about that. But before we get into it, we're gonna pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. <music> and we're back, thank you, sponsor. So yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about um the reaction to bloomers and also some of these other things going on at the same time that influenced this bloomerism movement?
1: Yeah, so I think I think the first thing is that we have to understand why dress reform was even considered an issue of women's rights at this time. And in order to do that, you have to understand what women were wearing in the 1850s. Um, you know, the fashion silhouette was highly restrictive. Um, you know, next to their skin, the first layer, women would have been wearing a layer of undergarments, either kind of a chemise slip or a little what's called a chemisette, or it's kind of like a cami and little knickers that came down to the knee. Um, And these were usually cotton or linen. And then over that would be worn a tightly laced corset. But that's when all the petticoats start to get piled on. And I mean layers and layers of petticoats, like six, seven, eight layers. Um, And at least one of these was probably stiffened by crin or horsehair. And the Yeah, I know, itchy, right? (laughs) Uh, But the reason that all of these layers were worn was to create this volume um, in order to support these bell-shaped silhouette skirts that were so super fashionable during this time period. And it's only after piling on all these clothes that a woman would then put on her dress over all of these layers beneath. Um, you know, and, and this was really the dress of all American women at this time, regardless of class or social status. I mean, the, the fineness or the costiness, costliness of your clothes would would be a factor and would change, but this silhouette was expected of all women, you know. and And you can imagine, this is neither comfortable or practical, um, and and when you add to the fact that the fashionable bodices and sleeves of the era were extremely tight and fitted, you can really understand how their range of physical movement was was very much inhibited. You know, they're wearing like fifteen pounds of petticoats, a tightly laced corset. You know, it, and 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 the way that the the bodices were constructed, a lot of times it made it difficult for women to even raise their arms. You know, and. The reason that petticoats really become the focus of bloomerism um, is because that they did sweep the ground. Um, and because of that, they were just downright unhealthy. You know, they were dragging up dirt. They were dragging up mud. Like, whatever detritus was in the streets or the fields was living on the inside of your skirt. Um, and, you know, of course, the nature of laundry is not as it is today. Everything was washed by hand. Um, so so women felt truly Hampered by the dress of the era that society expected of them. But, you know, what, what was the alternative at this time?
0: Yeah, and so it's really easy to see why women might want a little bit of relief from these cumbersome <laughs> undergarments, these cumbersome garments. And Amelia at one point wrote, quote, common sense teaches us that the dress which is the most convenient and best adapted to our needs is the proper just dress for both men and women. So she also goes on to say we do not advocate the same style of dress altogether for both sexes and should be sorry to see women dress just like men, yet we should like to see a radical reform in women's costume so that she might be the free, healthy being God made her instead of the corseted, crippled, dragged down creature her slavery to clothes has made. So it was Amelia Bloomer who would become most famously associated with the trousers. As April said, she was um, really a well-known activist. She traveled and lectured extensively wearing this costume. But um, as mentioned, she began to wear the costume after um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and had worn it um, influenced by her cousin Libby Miller. But Libby Miller herself was not also the first woman to wear it. Um, This style of pant was also known as Turkish trousers because they were patterned after those worn by women in the Middle East. And really, this fascination with the exotic East led to their adoption by European and American women as fancy dress costume in the 18th and early 19th centuries. And by the early 19th century, women were wearing large baggy pants as sportswear in European sanitariums. And in America, in particular... These similar pants skirt ensembles were being worn by women at water care establishments. So the water cure movement was this interesting movement of the 19th century that championed the three physicians, water, exercise, and diet. But this form of costume was also being worn at these American religious and utopian communities, something I found particularly interesting. So there's this community of equality in New Harmony, Indiana, but there's also the Oneida community, which was founded by John Humphrey Noyes in New York um, in 1848. And he actually writes that, "'Women's dress is a standing lie. It proclaims that she is not a two-legged animal, but something like a churn standing on casters.' When the distinction of the sexes is reduced to the bounds of nature and decency, a dress will be adopted that will be the same or nearly the same for both sexes. So women in that community had adopted this um, dress and pant ensemble. And a couple of sources have suggested that Libby uh, Miller perhaps had seen these women uh, wearing this ensemble, and then that, that was why she decided to adopt it herself.
1: Yeah, it's this really interesting moment where everything's kind of converging all at the same time within this period Um, Of of a couple years, really. In the zeitgeist. (laughs) Yeah,
2: (laughs) I'd never thought about the way um, John Humphrey Noyes describes a dress as like a woman is like a churn. (laughs) I'd never really thought of it in that way, but now I can't stop thinking of it in that (laughs) way. It's a pretty effective quote.
1: (laughs) So, you know, in my opinion, the early adopters of the Bloomer costume really kind of did so for reasons of practicality. Um, the costume itself, as we said, was the shortened skirt, um, and then below them were worn the Turkish trousers. Um, slippers were worn with them in the summer, delicate little boots in the winter. Um, and, and, you know, women were still wearing dresses, and petticoats were still supporting the skirt. You know, the silhouette and the volume was there. It's just that, they now had this freedom to move their trousered legs a little more freely in this shortened skirt. And, you know, it has to be pointed out that the overall effect is not markedly different from fashionable dress of the era. It's just that for the first time in centuries of Western dress that women's calves and feet were revealed. Oh my God, this no, is so no. shocky, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but the point that I want to make here that I think is like the big takeaway from this is that, you know, these women were dressing for themselves to make their lives easier. You know, they were dressing for comfort rather than the male gaze. Um, and, and, and it's that fact that they had the audacity to do so. That's what was really deemed radical. You know, I mean, as in the case many times, you know, the meaning that we assigned to the garments themselves is arbitrary. You know, like Cass said, um, women had been wearing, you know, these types of baggy trousers in not only the Middle East, but also in Asia for centuries. Um, You know, so it wasn't really the pantaloons themselves that were the feminist statement. It was the women's boldness to defy convention kind of that made it so. So, you know, in, in many ways, it was the reaction of others to the bloomer costume that made it so controversial.
2: Yeah, and if we if we go back a little bit and just look at the context of other things that's that are happening at this time, we've we talked about how um, women couldn't really own property, uh, couldn't vote, things like that. That there were a lot of things, a lot of rights that women did not have that I think we take for granted today. And the one thing I wanted to bring up that you guys you uncovered in your research. Was this um, Tennessee legislator uh, oh a debate? Gosh. Yes, <laughs> could you could you speak to that? As one of my favorite quotes ever, I think.
1: Uh, Cass, would you like yes. to go for that
0: one? <laughs> um, in the Lily, in March of eighteen fifty, Amelia addressed recent legislature that had happened in Tennessee. Just um, uh, quite shocking, but I'll let her speak for herself. And I love her, by the way. She is so outspoken and. Um, sarcastic in her responses. And so, quote, the legislature of Tennessee have in their wisdom decidedly after gravely discussing the question that women have no souls and no right to hold property. Wise men these and worthy to be honored with seats in the halls of legislation? Women, no souls. Then of course, we're not accountable beings. And if not accountable to our maker, then surely not to man. Man represents us, legislates for us, and now holds himself accountable for us. How kind and him, and what a weight is lifted from us.
2: <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> that's, some 18, that's
0: some 1850 shade throwing. Yeah, <laughs>
2: it is indeed.
0: So, you know, basically, men were going to these extremes to Um, you know, devalue women's place in society, even going as far as to suggest that they had no souls as a reason to why they couldn't be active participants. So it's really quite remarkable, actually, and interesting um, how threatening this idea of women and women's rights was to men and society at this time. Mm
1: -hmm. And the Bloomer costume
0: was just only a signifier of that. Yeah, an extension to that. And it was terrifying to people that women would adopt this essentially male garment because it represented so much more, really this transgression um, from their ascribed gender roles. So it was a very exciting and also um, terrifying time for many people.
2: Yeah, um, I love how you you put that. I just don't want to lose track of um, how big a deal this was because I think for us now, we can sort of take for granted um, pants or our bloomers, uh, but it was it was a big deal, and it did cause some terrified reactions from some people. And we'll get into that after one more quick break. Forward from our sponsor, <music> and we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So, yes, um, bloomers caused quite quite a stir. There were a lot of reactions to it and a lot of varying reactions, especially at first. Um, do you guys want to get
0: into that? Yeah, so in its initial phases, it was really perceived as this novelty and almost as a curiosity. Amelia writes, quote, "'As soon as it became known that I was wearing the dress, this new dress, letters came pouring in upon me by hundreds uh, from women all over the country making inquiries about the dress and asking for patterns.'" it really showed how ready and anxious women were to throw off the burden of long, heavy skirts. And actually, the circulation of the lily, which was around 500 a month, rose to 4,000. So people were really curious about this new style of dress and probably really excited. I'm sure there were a lot of women who wanted to embrace this as well. And um, it was actually adopted by women as far west as California and in Florida. And April, I think you actually have a wonderful quote that speaks to this.
1: Oh, yeah. So there's a lot of primary source press coverage from the era of when people saw women in bloomer costume for the very, very first time. And and some of the descriptions are really, really wonderful. Um, there was this one newspaper from Florida that talks about three um local women that had adopted bloomer dress and they were dressed in pink and purple satin you know s- some of them had on a scarlet bodice paired with blue trousers you know these are these were costly um, ensembles sometimes and and i love this quote this this whole description this whole report of how fascinating these creatures were it ends with this quote they said they all wore beautiful little gypsy hats Decorated with fresh rose buds of every hue and color, and we almost imagined we had first beheld them. That we were visited by a flock of fairy queens. Love well, that, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know. So some people, some people were really truly um, enamored um, with the style. But um, the style, as Cass said, you know, it spread rather quickly from New York to Ohio to Michigan to California. And it even spread as far as Europe, particularly in London. Um, and what happens next um, at this kind of like early phase, if we start to begin to see this proliferation of events that were planned centered around the wearing of bloomer costume, particularly bloomer balls. What? Um, yeah. And these <laughs> these are so fabulous, right? I mean, they were dances specifically put on for the purpose of women being able to wear this bloomer style. You know, some of the women that participated in the Bloomer Balls had already adopted it as part of their daily dress. Um, but there was also another, like, healthy segment um, that, that considered themselves really only daring enough to to put it on for one night only. But, you know, the thing that I can say is that I think that early on, a lot of the press was a little bit more positive um, mm-hmm. than it was as time passed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it took, a, it took a bit of a turn. <laughs> yeah um, you know it really the positive press was kind of quickly outpaced by the negative um and and the style the style was highly controversial, you know, simply because within western dress, bifurcated garments or pants, you know, they'd been gendered male for centuries um and also within Western culture, they still remain to be seen as a signifier of power, you know, so the adoption of them by these women for whether for reasons of practicality or politics, um you know. This was perceived as a threat to the natural order of things, you know, and and, and if the bloomers, most of whom were affiliated with the women's rights movement, um, not all people involved in the women's rights movement wore bloomer costume, but most bloomer costume adopters were part of the women's rights movements. You know, it, it was basically thought that if they gained the equal rights of men, suddenly they would be no longer interested in marriage or maternity. I mean, I've seen statements in the press from the period that were basically like, you know, if women are allowed to wear pants, the depopulation of the world is imminent. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I know. it's crazy. It's like from zero to sixty. and it, and it's and it, you know, these women were really kind of usurping, quote unquote, male privilege in the fact that they were asking for the right to vote. They were asking for representation in government. They were asking for equal pay. And they were asking for the right to dress as they saw fit. Um, And and one of the most um, stunning examples um, that I saw in the press came from 1852 when a group of women wrote into the New York Times. And basically, they were, like, pleading to be left alone to wear their bloomer costumes on the street. Um, And they they said, as an exercise of our unalienable rights— and of course, the journalist who's reporting on this incident, um, it basically says, "You know, oh, if you want to exercise your rights, then we as men have the right to mock and ridicule you in the street." Get over it, ladies. <laughs> <Oof>. <laughs> oh, you, oh! You think that's bad? That's not even the worst. Oh no! Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know the, it, this wasn't exactly in the press per se, but but I do think it's worth um, going through this to really kind of understand the vitriol that that these women were subjected to. Um, in 1852, the Men's State Temperance Society meeting in New York, um, some of the women members. Um, Of the association that Amelia had started, the Women's State Temperance Society, um, attended. And there was a doctor there, um, Dr. Mandeville, who was so offended just by the presence of fellow temperance activists that happened to be women. He said at the meeting, he said that these women were, quote, a hybrid creature, half man, half woman, belonging to neither sex. This society and the women's rights movement must be cut down, cut up. Root and branch. I mean, these are the activists on on you know on working on the same issue. It's just that the men did not want the women there, regardless of the dress. But it's all of this. This is like the culture um, of 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 what was happening at the time.
0: Yeah, and and something that went a long way in sort of setting this negative tone associated with the style and specifically anti-bloomer. Um, ridicule were cartoons.
1: Um, and satire. Yeah, satire. satire.
0: I mean, people have loved to make fun of fashion for time eternal, basically. <laughs> um, but there's this one cartoonist, John Leach, um, in London who illustrates for this magazine called Punch. Um, and he basically made bloomerism the subject of his jokes repeatedly. I think um, in 1851, there was over 20 or something cartoons specifically against bloomerism. April, I think you have a particular one that you like. Oh, there's so or, many
1: favorites. <laughs> um, my favorite, though, is one where there's a woman in bloomer costume down on one knee proposing to a man. Which apparently, is very shocking for the era. Oh,
0: my
2: goodness.
1: Um, <laughs> and then all these women, you know, ha-
0: hanging around with each other, smoking cigars in their shortened skirts and pants. I mean they're quite amusing now because you know we really relate to these women. Mm-hmm. Um but back then this was this was um you know an attack essentially on these women um as being anti-feminine. And actually the irony of all this negative press is that women's fashion like I said was commonly the source of criticism and derision um Women repeatedly were criticized throughout history for their perceived vanity, their fickleness, and their attention to clothing. And yet, as the U.S. magazine points out in 1856, quote, When an effort is made to substitute a costume which admits of health and energy and grace, every newspaper in the land rises to cry loud and spare not lest women are stepping out of their sphere and assuming man's attire. I mean, you can't win.
2: <laughs> yeah. Another tightrope. <laughs> can't win.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And as April said, people are really, really threatened by this transgression because women are moving outside of these prescribed roles, these clearly delineated roles to become equals in society. Um, And there's all these underlying fears of gender role reversal that really becomes, bloomerism really becomes this visual manifestation of all of these fears. Yeah.
2: Yeah. um, But... Amelia didn't take this, this lying down, all of this criticism. She she rushed in to the defense of the bloomer costume, correct?
0: Yeah, I mean, she says, when I saw what a furor I had raised, I determined that I would not be frightened from my position, but I would stand my ground and wear the dress... When and where I please. So she wore it on all occasions. She says at home and abroad, at church and on the lecture platform, at fashionable parties and in my business office. I found the dress light, easy, and convenient, and well adapted to the needs of my busy life.
1: And Amelia saw the costume as a tool. Really, she saw how much a, like attention the costume itself was getting. And you know, just to paraphrase her, she said that you know, if if we're if our message, if our cause is getting all of this attention simply from these costumes that we're wearing or this style of dress that we're wearing, which is deemed radical. If people are coming to hear me because of that, Mm -hmm. I'm fine with that, you know. And until I stop getting publicity for this and and bringing people in the doors to hear our message, I'm not gonna wear anything else. Um, But she did uh, kind of cease wearing it daily around 1855 or 1856. Um, She moved to Iowa, to the Plains, and this is a really funny story. Um, Apparently, she says that the wind there was a real struggle for her (laughs) because she was unaccustomed to these high winds, like, on the Plains, and it would blow her shortened skirt up over her head in the street. Oh, no. (laughs) So that was one of the reasons why she gave it up. Um, But also around the same time, this is the exact precise moment when the hoop skirt or cage crinoline hit the marketplace, Um, and this eliminated all the need for those layers and layers of petticoats um, because the the cage crinoline, basically it was a a series of graduated concentric hoops that held the skirt away from the body, and you didn't need all those layers of petticoats anymore. So Amelia felt that this was a suitable substitute um, for the much-shortened bloomer costume um and and many of the other women's rights leaders around this same time um they they felt they began to feel like this cause of dress reform was taking second stage to their message of suffrage for equal pay for representation in government the right to own property and they were like whoa 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 maybe maybe we need to put dress reform on the back burner and address you know some of these other issues first
2: right because it was sort of Becoming a distraction, it was a it was getting a lot more attention than perhaps they had hoped, and it was some at least in the view of some people, it was taking away from these other issues that they they really wanted to focus on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Susan B. Anthony actually reflected on it years later. She said that. I learned the lesson then that to be successful, a person must attempt but one reform. I must not present the temperance, the religious, the dress, or any other besides, but must confine myself to suffrage. So basically, they needed to focus on one issue at a time.
1: Yeah. But that being said, I mean, it didn't disappear entirely. Mm -hmm. Um, There was another feminist newspaper that was founded a little bit later called The Sybil. Um, and in 1858, they actually reported back that um, 403 women in the United States continued to wear um, reform dress, whether it be exactly the Bloomer costume or, or some um, derivation of. Other associations around this same time begin to pop up, championing the cause of dress reform. And this will continue all the way into the 1880s. So while a lot of the leaders of the women's rights movement um, gave up um, bloomer costume, um, that, that seed had already been planted and there are other people that would pick it up. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting as the dress reform movements, um, in later in the eight, um, 19th century in the 1880s, their focus actually shifts away from being about the skirt length and petticoats, and it shifts to become the corset as being the main issue. Yeah, and something
0: I actually want to go back a second because I actually find it kind of amusing that um, the Sybil, um, the women who supported the Dress Reform Association, which was formed in 1856, kind of directly after the women's rights activists had kind of left off um, wearing the Bloomer costume, they really kind of openly criticized these women and there was a, a debate about Um, dress reform and when women should wear this reform dress. And the women's rights activists believed that dress reform would come after women were given their due rights in society. And these dress reformers actually believe that social change would only occur as a result of wearing um, this uh, style of dress and presenting it in um, a moral and exemplary way.
1: Right. So basically, they were they were politicized. There were two. There were two camps. There some was people. <laughs> some people wanted to politicize the dress, um, in order to gain reform, and other people wanted to depoliticize dress and deal with all the other business first.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so, like as April says, it never really went away. But as as a fashion, as a, and as an accepted form of dress, this would not come for many many years, around nineteen ten nineteen eleven. The controversial Parisian haute couturier Paul Perret, he put forth a version of quote unquote harem pants for women. And these were known as jupe culottes, literally pant skirt. Um, although he always maintained that his versions were meant to be worn in the privacy of one's home, his contemporaries, um, such as Beshaf Bevade um proved more bold and they sent their models into the streets to model these designs. And again, this was incredibly controversial. Um, it was a very short-lived movement. And it really wasn't until the 1960s, so 100 years after Amelia Bloomer, um, and when conformity was thrown to the wind in a whirl of miniskirts and hippie counterculture. Um, and it was during this period that women in pants finally found a footing. Um, and it's something that has, of course, continued into this day where pants are now part of this kind of ubiquitous uniform worn by both men and women. That seems so recent. <laughs>
1: It is. (laughs) Well, and one of the things that struck me, like to to your point, Annie, you said it seems feels so recent. One of the things that really struck me when I was reading all the press from um, surrounding the women's rights movements is that a lot of these issues from almost 175 years ago are still the exact same things that we're talking about today. Yep. And it, 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 at one point, I like was reading an article, and I cried a little. I was like, really? We're still having this conversation. Like, come on. <laughs> Good old tradition
0: of policing women's bodies is alive and well.
1: Yeah, I, I kept
2: thinking about um, how in politics, women are judged so much more harshly on what they wear. We've talked about that on the show before. And that's where a lot of the news coverage focuses on on what women female candidates are wearing like sneaker gait or something and it is still such a topic of conversation um, like in the dress code or that we have no functional pockets in a lot of our clothes which is one of our most popular episodes we've ever done because a lot of us are frustrated by it right Mm -hmm. and it it reminds me of that segment on fox news that went viral a few years back when those dudes from duck dynasty were saying that leggings were too distracting for public attire.
0: (laughs) I had never seen that, by the way, until you pointed it out. And it yeah, it's pretty disturbing, actually. These women come out parading in front of this panel of men who are judging them on what they wear. Yeah. (laughs) And it it reminded me
2: of the whole point of this Bloomerism, of what Amelia Bloomer was trying to to communicate, was that sometimes women are dressing for themselves and for comfort and for functionality and not for you
0: not for yeah. the male gaze. Exactly.
2: Mm-hmm. So yeah, a lot of this is still still ongoing.
0: Oh yeah, um April and I talked about it in an, in one of our episodes on this um modernist dancer and performer Gabby DeLee, um whose body was similarly policed or tried people tried to police her in the 1910s, but um it really reminded us about uh, last year the United States Speaker of the House Paul Ryan um finally agreed to modernize the dress code for the House of Representatives. Um basically women could not wear sleeveless business attire until that point and um Ooh. and so <laughs> oh it's like gosh. this is 2017 and women are still not allowed to wear um what they see fit.
2: Right. And I I mean the whole conversation around wearing pantsuits, Hillary Clinton wearing pantsuits, it's just again, you can't win.
1: <laughs> Oh my gosh, when that all happened, do you know how many press inquiries I got wanting people, people wanting me to comment on pantsuits? It was crazy. And I'm like, why are we talking about this?
2: (laughs) Seems very, like, not the point of what (laughs) we should be focusing on.
1: Exactly. And I actually, I declined them all because I I was like, I'm not going to fuel this discussion any further. Like... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, let's let's
2: try to shift to something more more important, like what she's yeah. saying. Uh, but you have uh, a, a little bit of a quote from Lady Gaga on this whole thing, right?
0: Oh yeah, well, Lady Gaga. I mean, April kind of spoke to it earlier. How the pant has become, you know, a co-opted garment by both sexes, but it still does today remain um, slightly gendered in that it represents this um, idea of power. And so recently at um, Elle's annual Women in Hollywood celebration, uh, Lady Gaga opted to wear not a beautiful, um, extravagant evening gown, um, but rather an oversized Marc Jacobs suit. And um, it was a, a suit that was made for women, but it still um, represents this masculine garment. And um, she really was empowered by it. And, that, and she said, I had a revelation that I had to be empowered to be myself today more than ever to resist the standards of Hollywood, whatever that means, to resist the standards of dressing, to impress, but to use what really matters, my voice. And as a woman who was conditioned at a very young age to listen to what men told me to do, I decided today I wanted to take the power back. Today, I wear the pants.
1: Yes.
2: I love that. I wear the pants. <laughs> <laughs> go go, go. It's funny, too, because... Um, all of this has made me appreciate pants even more because it's just something I think a lot of us take for granted. And um, I guess the 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 funny part for me is now I can hardly convince myself to wear pants. <laughs> that's such a that's such a great day when I do it. So I, I would encourage all of us to to take a moment and just appreciate the history.
0: Right. Well, the idea is that you have the right to choose now. Exactly. People like Amelia Bloomer have fought for you to be able to make that decision, whether or not you want to wear pants or put whatever you want on your body. The point is that you have the right to do that.
2: Absolutely.
1: Well said.
0: So it's really thanks to them that we have that choice today.
2: Yes. So next time you're struggling in the morning, you're you're trying to pull on your pants, just (laughs) take a moment. Take a breath and appreciate all of this history, and but also continue fighting for better pockets because that's what I want. (laughs) (laughs) I am all about those pockets. Thank you both so much for coming on. This has been wonderful.
1: Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you so much. This was really fun. Where can our listeners find you? They can find us on our show, Dress the History of Fashion Podcast, um, which is on the House Stuff Works Network. You can find it on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Um, and Cass, do you want to tell them about our social media?
0: Yeah, so we also have um, our website, www.dressedpodcast.com, but we have an Instagram in which we post images daily to accompany each podcast. And that is at dressed underscore podcast, which is also our Twitter handle. And you can find us on Facebook as well at Dressed Podcast without the underscore.
1: Thank you so much, Annie.
2: Oh my gosh, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I when I heard that there were bloomer balls, I can't tell you how excited <laughs> I was. <laughs> Maybe I well, should you know bust what? out some bloomers.
1: <laughs> I have I have a fashion plate depicting one of the bloomer balls. I will send it to you, yes. and you can put it on the Instagram for this episode. <laughs>
2: that would be amazing. That would be amazing. Yes, thank you so much for coming on. Listeners, go check their show out. It's wonderful. I'm sure you'll find something super fascinating for you. And if you would like to email this show, you can. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Stuff Mom never Told you and on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Andrew Howard, and
0: thanks to you for listening. Well, that does it for us today, listeners, ladies, and gents. May you consider the power of wearing pants next time you get dressed. For images accompanying each week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. You can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And we love hearing from you. So if you'd like to email us, please do so at dressed at
1: for additional readings for each week's episode, please check out our show notes at dressedpodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store at teepublic.com forward slash dressed. That's tepublic.com forward slash dressed. And a special thanks to Annie and Bridget for having us on the show. Please be sure to check out their podcasts on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, of course, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And last but not least, thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at How Stuff Works who makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon!